Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. So my name is Andrew, if we haven't met, and um, we're in a series in Ephesians, and we've been in there for this is like week 17 or 18, and we're in chapter 3 at the beginning of it still, and we're going to be lots more weeks in this, but we're just trying to just, um, just walk through systematically and progressively this book of Ephesians. And um, the longer I sit in this, the, the deeper the well seems to go, and this book is a this powerful, soaring kind of letter to these people that uncovers some foundational truths that we need to understand for our Christian life. And the the number one thing Paul is trying to unpack for us in this letter is that there is a spiritual realm and there's a natural realm. And that the spiritual realm and natural realm, they interface together. They're analogous together. They, they actually, uh, they coexist together that what happens in the spiritual realm uh, impacts and affects what happens in the natural. And what happens in the natural realm has an impact and effect in the spiritual realm. That God didn't design uh, our world and he didn't design creation to have this, this human element that's separated from the spiritual realm. He designed us to walk in both of them. And it's a challenge for us. To understand that, but Paul is laying out this, this deep and, and powerful doctrine that what happens in the spiritual realm can have a profound impact on your life, for good or bad. And his challenge to us is to, igno- uh, to acknowledge that, but not only acknowledge that, but to learn how to engage in that. And because of what Jesus did and because of who God is, we have the ability, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've surrendered your life to him, if you have surrendered your heart to him and are walking after him, the Bible says that that you are seated with him in Ephesians 2 and that, that you now are an heir, that you've been adopted, that you've been chosen, that you've been set apart, you've been made an heir, you've been given authority in the spiritual realm as well as the natural. And there's this concept, I've mentioned it a few times, that in the spiritual realm, there are no victims. You're not a victim in the spiritual realm. I'm not a victim. We have the opportunity to walk in authority, to walk in victory. And so we've been walking through this journey. You can listen to all of those messages on our website or on um, the iTunes podcast we have, or Spotify, or whatever. But today we're going to continue in Ephesians 3. And we're in this sort of digression of Paul in Ephesians 3, verse 2 to 13. And uh, we've been talking about that for a few weeks. Last week we talked about the role of pain and suffering. How can a good God possibly allow pain in our lives and on this world And we talked about that last week. That's one of the the big ideas of this digression that Paul goes into. You see, what Paul is about to do in chapter 4 is he's about to transition from sort of the theoretical to the practical. 
But in order for us to walk in the practical, we have to understand what it is we're walking in. And so before he makes this transition, he, he pauses for a moment and says, hey, uh, let's just catch up and, and review a few of these foundational principles of who God is, what his identity is, who you are and who I am, what our identity is. These are foundational to spiritual authority and walking in authority in our lives. If we don't get those things right, the ground is going to be really shaky under our feet. The second large concept, so last week was pain, the second large concept we're talking about today that Paul is addressing here with relation to God is the sovereign rule of God. We can't understand or grasp the nature of the spiritual realm until we wrestle with and understand as best we can, because there's elements that we can't understand, as best we can the sovereignty of God. Understanding the God who sits at the top of all things, who is above all things, who rules all things in the spiritual realm and the natural realm is essential for our operation in spiritual things. If you would call yourself a Christian here, by nature, that is supposed to mean that you lead a spiritual life. What I find in my own experience, and largely across especially our North American Western culture, there's very little spiritual in our spiritual life. It's disciplines, which are good. It's natural things. We, we, we try and... Um, we try and live this world where we're, we're using our own strength and power to manage sin. And all we do is exert our own energy and effort in an attempt to manage sin and in an attempt to kind of dabble in the spiritual realm. But that's ineffective, and that's not actually what God calls us to do. He didn't call you just to manage your sin. He calls you to kill it. And in killing it, to stand up and walk in victory over it. You're not a victim. There's no sin in your life that Jesus doesn't have power over. There's no sin in your life or my life that Jesus hasn't invited us to walk in victory over. It's an absolute lie of the pit of hell to believe that you will always have to deal with this thing in the same way. If you're in a cyclical pattern of sin sexual immorality, addicted to pornography, cheating on your spouse, always seeming to live at the mercy of your desires. The devil wants you to believe that you can't overcome that and that you just have to find a good way to manage it, to cope with it. But coping is not a kingdom principle. Killing it, not yourself, it, and walking in victory over it as it lays dead in the grave is a kingdom principle. Not learning how to become friends with it and, you know, try and do this dance together. That's never what the kingdom talks about. And that's not what Paul is talking about. We're going to unpack a little bit of that, a little bit of that as we talk about the sovereign plan of God. So I just want to read to you from Ephesians again, and we're going to read this passage over and over and over until you get it. <laughs> and I get it. All right. So Paul's got us in a master class right now in spiritual warfare. 
He wants to get to the practical, like how do I walk in victory? But we have to establish our understanding of who God is, who we are, and what we have in Christ. Ephesians 3, 1 and 2, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there. It's in the New Testament. If you don't, most of this, some of the verses will be on the screen today. Some of it will not be by design. So Ephesians 3, 1 and 2. So we're going to highlight what Paul is referencing here to the sovereign plan of God, the sovereignty of God. Ephesians 3, 1 and 2. When I think of all this, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ for the benefit of you Gentiles, assuming, by the way, that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles. As I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. So already in these first three verses, Paul is hinting at something that we need to fundamentally grasp about the sovereign plan of God. Here's the three instances already that he's talked about, that he's a prisoner of Christ. Paul distinguishes that he's a prisoner of Christ, not of Rome. Ultimately, he is in chains, shackled to Roman guards, living under a Roman-occupied geographic territory. But what Paul is saying there is that really Rome isn't in charge, that I'm here where I am experiencing what I'm experiencing because of the sovereign hand and plan of God. Number two in these first three verses, God gave him an, the assignment. It wasn't the product of his own goals and strategy, of his own sort of leadership development and Christian life planning, that it was God who actually supernaturally gave him the assignment. Number three, God himself revealed his mysterious plan. It's God who reveals himself. Essentially, what Paul is saying is, I was going one way. I was on the road to Damascus. I was dead set on torturing and imprisoning and killing Christians. I was dead set at discrediting and stamping out the name of God. But God, in his revealing of himself to me, turned me around. It wasn't Paul's initiative it wasn't Paul's desire that suddenly landed him in this place. It was the hand of a sovereign God on his life. The hand of a God who rules the heavens and the earth. This is what Paul is referencing. Let's continue on. Verse 4, as you read what I've written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his Spirit he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe in the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone the mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, has kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 12. 
Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So please don't lose heart because of my trials here. I'm suffering for you, so you should feel honored. Let's just do a quick review, even in these few verses. What is Paul hinting at as it relates to the sovereign will and plan of God? That it was God who did not reveal his plan previously in verse 5. It's by his spirit that he has revealed in verse 5. It is God's plan. Notice the owner of the plan. It's not God. It's not this uh, sort of the universe is doing this. It's not that God kind of created the universe and then kicked it out and just said, I'm going to watch you from a distance. That's a deist view of God. The idea that God is somehow withdrawn from us, that he created us, that but he created natural laws and systems that just function and he's hands off. Paul is saying, "Uh uh-uh. God is actually intimately involved in the affairs of the earth and in our lives. It's by God's grace. It's his grace. And it's his power. Paul said, I have been given the privilege of serving him. It's something that God initiated and gave to me. He says in verse 8, he graciously gave me the privilege. Verse 9, I was chosen. In the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul said that we are chosen, we are loved, and we are adopted. It's the initiating work of a sovereign God in our life that draws us to himself. Jesus literally said that no man can be drawn to the Father except through him. That it's the initiating work of a sovereign God that even gives you the idea that there's a God who is worthy of your life. You're not a product just simply of your own will and desires. In fact, the Bible says that left to our own proclivity, left to our own desires, without the involvement of God in our life, we will always choose evil. We were born into sin. We have no capacity outside of Christ to choose good. And this is why we need the saving grace of Jesus Christ. This is why we need the influence of God in our life. Because without him, we are hopelessly, desperately lost. Your good will never be good enough. What you think is a desire to do good is actually, the Bible says, evil. It's God who initiated relationship with us because he loves us. It's God who initiated a plan to redeem the earth and reset it to his original design. Verse 10, it's God's purpose. And this purpose was to use the church. It's God's purpose. It's his power. It's his leadership. This was, in verse 11, this was his eternal plan, which he carried out. Verse 12, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. What do you notice just about that sort of summary look at those verses? How many I's are in there? How many I did's are in there? How many I chose are in there? How many I will are in there? None. What Paul is establishing here, if we want to walk in power in the spiritual realm, is a, a, we need a greater understanding 
of the sovereignty of God. I've said this before, and this is becoming a deeper conviction in my life. The Bible is not about you and me. The Bible is not about you and your life. It's about God. It's his story. It's his plan of redemption. It's his longing for relationship with you. It's his longing to set you free so you can actually live and become the person that he's designed you to be. This is why Paul says you were chosen before the foundation of the earth. You're not a product of random cells coming together, moving toward each other to create this sort of physical human life that has no meaning and purpose. You're a product of design intentionally by an intelligent being named God who before the earth was even formed knew exactly what he had made you for and created you for, knew what he had called you to, knew what you could aspire to and live up to with his power, with his authority, with his life knew the troubles that you'd face. He knew all the adversity that you'd experience. He knew all of it, and he knew that he made you for a reason so that you could join him in his mission to bring the kingdom of heaven on the earth, to unwind, as Jesus said, the the effects of sin. This is the gospel. This is what Paul is saying is it's God's plan and his design. It's his doing. Sovereignty, so just a quick definition of that. The sovereignty of God is his absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. His relationship to the world is to be understood not in a sense of vague omnipresence, but a relationship that penetrates into all things as a compelling presence that engages all things. God is using all things to work together for good. There's nothing that we are experiencing, there's nothing on this world that is not actually a tool and a product and a resource God can use to actually affect the purposes and plans that he has. Paul here is talking about this revelation in verse 3. He says this, and it's really interesting. He says uh, in verse 3, as I Briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. Paul is referencing a couple of things in different stages of revelation. He's referencing here this life-changing encounter that happened with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Where God revealed himself supernaturally and powerfully to him. And then Paul says in Galatians, after that encounter realizing that what he thought he knew, he didn't really know, and where he thought he should be going, he shouldn't really be going, and what he thought his life was about really wasn't what it was about. He went into Arabia, into the desert for three years, and he says of that experience in Galatians 1 that it was God who reset his life. It was God who re-taught him. Paul was educated to the highest levels in the Torah, in the the Old Testament book of the Bible as the Jews read it in the first century. Paul knew it back and forth, upside, downside, but that was not the saving thing in his life. And in fact, his perception of what he knew to be true had to be totally reformatted by God. And so Paul went away 
for three years and was reformatted by God. God was teaching him about his nature and his character. Some things that we can understand and grapple with about the sovereignty of God. And of course, all of these things, Paul is laying out this lofty theology here, these lofty ideas that we, we just simply can't wrap our head around and create neat and tidy boxes around. But we're going to talk about a few of them, and I, I want to leave them with you. First thing about God's sovereignty is that it actually does encompass the most minute details of our life. There is nothing in your life or my life that goes unnoticed by God. There's no shadow you can hide in. There's no place you can run. As David said, I, I, I can't run from God. If I go to the heavens, he's there. If I'm on the earth, he's there. If I'm under the earth, he's there. God sees every small detail of your life. In Matthew, Jesus is teaching, and he says this in Matthew 10, 29, 30. What is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. God knows every intimate detail of your life. The mystery is that he loves you and me in spite of that. That God's sovereignty exists on a minute detail level. He's not distant and withdrawn. He's actually wanting to speak into your life in the smallest way. He wants to reveal himself in the smallest detail. He wants you to be thankful for the littlest thing that he does in your life. Just like Simon this morning in the story. I said, Simon, we, we need to remember to be thankful for even these little things. This little thing is not insignificant. It's actually the work of a God who loves you and cares for you and wants to reveal himself to you. Never despise the small things. God has a minute detail interest in our lives. When God altered Paul's course of life, God had a design and a desire to actually set him on the course that he had created him for. Paul goes on to say about his experience with God that what happened was he was actually moved from the wrong path to the right path. The right trajectory based on what God had designed him for. I think more than ever, we need to understand and our children need to understand, our students, if you're in university or if you're in high school, middle school, you need to understand that you have an identity from God that is not the product of human conception. It's not the product of political activism. It's not the product of your own doing. It's an identity from a good, sovereign God on your life because he wants you to thrive. He wants you to live this abundant life that he's called you to. The question is, are you willing to accept the identity of God over your life? Or will you demand that you carve out your own identity? In our culture, right now, in our culture, we're being beat down with this stick. 
that your identity is a product of your feelings and your imagination, that your identity is something that you intrinsically have authority over. And God says, you don't. You didn't make yourself. You can't cause a hair on your head to grow, especially if you're bald. You've tried. You may look to Rogaine. And I Googled that once even. That's how old I feel like I'm getting. I literally, like last year, I Googled like hair loss for men. I feel like it's coming and I just want to prepare. (laughs) But Paul is saying, look, there is something that God has placed in you that comes from him that's good and that needs to actually be unpacked. Paul had a choice on that road of Damascus. Will I surrender to the authority and direction of God in my life? Will I surrender to the sovereign plan of God in my life or will I go my own way? Will I decide that I am the captain of my own ship, that I'm the arbiter of my own fate? You see, Paul is writing to a group of people in Ephesus in Asia Minor at the time who served hundreds and hundreds of deities, and they believed in this thing called fate, and they were terrified of it. They lived in oppressing fear of fate. What would the gods do to me? What will happen to my life? If I do this, what will the gods do? If I don't please the gods in this way, what will they do? If I don't you know, undergo this ritual or this ceremony or this sacrifice, what will the gods do? And they lived under this oppressing, oppressing canopy of fear because of fate. And Paul comes in and says, fate mate. There's a sovereign God who is never out of control. Nothing ever takes him by surprise. You may see these chains. You may see that I'm in prison, but I'm not a victim. And this is not outside of God's control. It's not outside of his sovereign love and his plan. I may not understand it, but God is never not able to work. Fate mate. I put my trust in the God of the heavens and the earth who created me, who knows me better than I know myself, who knows what he's put in my DNA as a child of his. I'm going to entrust my life to him. And this is what he's challenging the Ephesians with. We're told in the Bible that understanding And obeying the will of God does not come instinctively for us. That was a decision that Paul made on that road. What am I going to do with God? What am I going to do with how he's upended my life here? Psalm 143.10 says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your gracious spirit lead me forward on a firm footing. We need to be taught how to walk in alignment with God. This is what is called discipleship. This is what is called spiritual growth. It's the process of learning and submitting and coming under the leadership of God in our life. We need to be taught it. We need to grow in it, and we need to develop it. Three areas of sovereignty. Number one, and I think we have this on the screen. This was a longer one, and this we could take weeks and months, and people have written whole books about this that are way smarter than me. So I just added what I did on the screen for you with sovereignty and free will. So how do we reconcile a sovereign God who has 
super level detail control and sovereignty over the earth with free will. Hey, I thought we got to choose. I thought we decided what we wanted to do. Well, yes and no. And it's a little bit of both, and I don't totally get it. <laughs> but I'm going to read this to you. Some see a contradiction between divine sovereignty and human free will, an often, mis an often misunderstood term. Man's will is free in that he makes willing choices that have actual consequences. We see that all through Scripture. Yet man's will is not morally neutral. It is in bondage to sin, and without divine grace, he chooses freely and consistently to reject God. Scripture affirms both divine sovereignty and man's willing activity. Pharaoh's rise to power was entirely in accordance with his own will. It was also entirely by the hand of God. The crucifixion of Christ was fully the free act of sinful men who crucified Jesus, and at the same time, fully the purpose of God. Conversions are reported in Acts in a manner consistent with both concepts. That in some mysterious way, God is sovereign over all of the plans of man. In Proverbs it says, I think it's Proverbs 16, that man makes plans in his heart, but it's God who determines our steps. We can choose in our heart where to go, but it's actually God who determines according to his sovereign design for our life. What happens? Number two, sovereignty in prayer. So what's the point of praying then? Why even bother praying if God's just going to do what he wants to do? If we have no real choice or prerogative in the matter, why bother praying? And the truth is we do have a choice. And the truth is that God in his relational capacity wants to partner with us. The reason that he made us was to do life together with us. He designed us for a relationship with him. He designed us to rule on his behalf as his image bearers on the earth. And he has a keen interest in your prayer life and in my prayer life. God's sovereignty means for someone who believes in Christ that if God is for us, who can be against us? Scripture declares abundantly God's willingness to grant the believer's requests. A believer can pray with confidence that his prayers will be heard and answered. I want to read to you a story, I think, that beautifully illustrates this from Exodus 17. And in Exodus 17, we have the story of Israel. They've come out of the promised land. Uh, sorry, <laughs> they've come out of Egypt. And they are on their way into the promised land. And on their way in, they're facing significant opposition, not unlike the things that we face in our life today. Exodus 17 is a story of a, a battle scene. And Moses, in this battle scene, is taking his role as leader. But his role as a leader isn't to lead the cavalry. His role as a leader is to actually intercede and pray. I think this is a beautiful picture of what God calls us to in our life. 
You know, David said, some people trust in chariots and horses, but I trust in the name of the Lord. Some people choose to fight with their strength, with their words, with their power. They exert authority and power. They rule over people. But what Paul is hinting at here and what this story in Exodus reveals to us is that there's a much greater strategy from God, and that's one, to access his provision in the spiritual realm. Verse 8 says this, while the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Moses commanded Joshua, choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill holding the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the staff was a symbol of authority. The staff is what Moses used to part the Red Sea. The staff was a symbol of the authority of God that he'd been given. We live in the new covenant. We live in the, the, the finished work of Jesus, and we don't need a staff to walk in authority. We actually have been given authority as sons and daughters by God. When you give your life to Jesus, you're given spiritual authority. There's a difference between authority and power. We're not going to unpack that today. You might have authority, but you may be getting kicked around because there's certain things that you're not doing that aren't happening in your spiritual life that are robbing you of your power to actually exercise victory. So as long as he held his hand up with the staff in it, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses' arms soon became tired. He could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and Hur, not her, but her, <laughs> not sure how to say that in Hebrew, her. Anyway, I digress. Hur found a stone for him to sit on. Then they stood on each, on each side of Moses, holding up his hand, so his hands held steady until sunset. As a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. This is a picture of God's invitation to partner with us in seeing the kingdom of heaven come to earth. It's a, a picture of God's design and his heart for us to partner with us as we intercede in prayer. Paul is about to move into intercession in Ephesians 3, 14. But he wants to make sure that we understand God has a role for us in partnering with him, in pulling down the kingdom of heaven, in affecting the affairs of the earth with the power of heaven. This is what Paul is talking about. That this power, you've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has withheld nothing from you. So why is your life not transformed and changed? Are you partnering with him in prayer spiritually? James says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. But he begins that statement by saying this, confess your sin to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. That's what we did today. There's an invitation for God, for us, to engage in the spiritual realm, and that road begins with confession, with humility, begins with us acknowledging 
and asking God every morning as I'm praying. I, I, part of my, my prayer journey in the morning is just simple. I go to Psalm 139. As I pray through the Lord's Prayer like I've been doing for over a year now every morning, and I camp at, Father, forgive me for my sin as I forgive those around me. And when I camp at that phrase, my heart goes to Psalm 139, and I say, search me this morning, Holy Spirit. I love how it says, first, search me and know my anxious thoughts. This is something uh, that I just clued into, like literally maybe a month ago. That if I'm consumed with anxiety, I don't know where it's coming from, I don't know what's happening in my life, my anxiety will lead me away from the purposes of God. Anxiety undermines faith. And anxiety um, tempts us to act out of our own strength to fix and solve. And so David's got this deep, deep thing that he's probing at. And he says, test my anxious thoughts. God, I want to hand over to you first those things that are bubbling up in me, that are leading me to trust in my own ability, that are, that are actually throttling my faith, God, that are, that are causing fear in me. Show them to me so that I can deal with them, so that I can walk in the way you've called me to. And after that, I invite you to examine, God, every part of my heart, are there areas of unfaithfulness in my life? Are there areas of sin that I've, are hidden, that I'm not even aware of? Search me and know me. This is the road to walking in spiritual authority in our lives. I'm going to invite you to stand. The book of Daniel is an awesome book in the Old Testament. And Daniel reveals to us that God has strategically and precisely measured out the times for even world empires. That the affairs of this world are not outside of the work and the sovereignty of God. That God cannot be, I want you to get this as we close here today, Part of the sovereignty of God is that he cannot be successfully opposed. Job 42.2, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. 2 Samuel 2.10, those who fight against the Lord will be shattered. He thunders against them from heaven. The Lord judges throughout the earth. He gives power to his king and increases the strength of his anointed one. Second Chronicles 26, he prayed, O Lord, God of our ancestors, you alone are the God who is in heaven. You are ruler of all the kingdoms of the earth. You are powerful and mighty. No one can stand against you. As we learn from Daniel, I want to read these verses and leave them with you in closing and ask one final question after I've read these verses. Daniel 4, 25 and 6. This is God dealing with not a king in the nation of Israel, not a quote-unquote Christian, but King Nebuchadnezzar. He says this, you will be driven, this is of King Nebuchadnezzar, from human society and you will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow and you will be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way. 
until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. But the stump and roots of the tree were left in the ground. This means that you will receive your kingdom back. When you, I, if you have a Bible, go to this and underline it. You'll receive your kingdom back again when you have learned that heaven rules. King Nebuchadnezzar, this is Daniel pleading with the king, and this would be my plea to you. As I live this out in my life, I challenge you with this. King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. It's not a question of if we are being led and directed in our life. It's a question of who's leading and directing you. Is it the God who created you and has a plan to give you life and life to the fullest? Or is it the enemy of God, the kingdom of darkness, the devil who comes to steal and kill and destroy? The question is not if you're being led by something, it's what. You get to choose today who you will fall under and allow you to walk in victory or defeat or death. That road today starts where it started with Nebuchadnezzar. Let's pray. Father, there's so much about your sovereignty we just simply cannot fathom and understand. But I just ask, Father, as we are just walking out of here, that you would so clearly speak to each one here, remind them of their intrinsic value and worth that they've been created for meaning and for purpose. They've been created to partner with the God above all gods, that you have made them to walk in victory, that you have designed a plan and purpose for their life. Father, and give us the courage to begin to lead confessional lives. Give us the courage to admit our own failure and sin. Give us the courage to walk in the light and not in the darkness. Father, I pray that you would teach us more about this spiritual realm so that we can live in victory, in strength, in hope, in peace. Jesus, you are the Prince of Peace, and we choose to walk behind you today. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.